Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. This week on Startup Dads, we've got our first deep tech co-founder. James Field is the founder and CEO of Lab Genius, a London-based startup applying AI and robotic automation to protein drug discovery. In this show, we cover framing success for yourself and your business when success can be tough to measure, the power of mentors in learning to work smart as well as hard, and how becoming a parent teaches you the importance of being a role model both at home and at work. As always, it's great to hear from you all, so do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. Alternatively, reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santharasanan, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. So, James, what makes you a startup dad? <laughs> um, well, I was doing my uh, my PhD at Imperial College. I've met my wife at that, that venerated institution as an undergrad, and I was absolutely passionate about, and still am, passionate about how um, science can be used to accelerate the process of, of drug discovery. And so finished the PhD, con- started building the company, building Lab Genius, and continued basically the research for several years until my wife turned around and said to me one day, James, you know, you've been doing this company for some time now. When are you going to get a real job? I said, what do you mean? You know, this is this is a real job. And she said, no, no, it's not. Uh, you know, you pay yourself and everyone in the company minimum wage. There are four of you. And, you know, we've got our baby to you in the next few months get some financing sorted or get a real job and so that was really the, the kick up the arse that I needed to go on that first growth journey of how do I go from being a, a bench scientist to start to understand how companies are built and how they fit together and actually I made it by the skin of my teeth and we closed our first financing round in Q4 2017 that was a seed round led by Kindred and I closed that from um, the hospital car park just as as well I should say that my daughter you know had been born just at that point and I was there for the for the duration of the birth but 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 shortly after I did have to nip out to um, speak to the lawyers and you know that was a real inflection point and and that was the moment that both Lab Genius got financed and I became a dad so that is my startup dad story. That's a super cool story. That's amazing. <laughs> we haven't had one where they both happened almost contemporaneously, uh, which is pretty epic. I've got so many questions to ask you coming out of that. And I also can totally relate. Just before my daughter was born, I remember having a call with our, our flagship client, who remains one of our most significant clients at the time, talking about things. I was like, sorry, I've got to go. I'm going to have a baby. That's not an exaggeration. I literally mean I'm going to have a baby. They were very understanding. So maybe we can zoom back a little bit and talk about Lab Genius because Lab Genius has been going for a little while. You've had a really fantastic academic career. Ostensibly, you could have been an academic. So what drove you to make a startup out of your work rather than kind of follow on the academic life? Because they are quite, I think one of the things you see is lots of super smart people, they choose one of these paths. They're quite different, um, but it's quite common to have a choice between them. So I'm fascinated to hear your story. Yeah, it's, and it's an interesting one because, you know, at the end of my, I, sorry, I did my undergrad in microbiology at Imperial and, I, and, and at the end of it, you know, I was all set to go into the city and had some, some jobs lined up and then something happened to me. I was, I happened to be involved in this, this competition and it was called the iGEM competition, which is the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition. And it's an undergrad program where you and a, a team from your, your institution participate in a genetic engineering project and then go to fly out to Boston for a big competition. And, and that was 
you know, really a watershed moment for me because it was an opportunity to participate in really a, a research project that had been driven by myself and, and by my my peers on the team. And I really never looked back after that. And, and I was, as I say, very lucky because that sort of springboarded me into a, a master's for, for systems and synthetic biology at Imperial, where again, I, I had this amazing opportunity to conduct an independent research project. And, and at the end of that, I had an amazing um, mentor and, and, and PhD supervisor who essentially said, James, you know, I'm going to give you four years to go away and do whatever research you like and come back at the end of it and let's see what you've done. Um, and so through that lens, it was actually quite an unusual set of opportunities to have as a as a graduate student and, and, and a PhD student where, you know, really I had such freedom to explore different things intellectually and, and run my own projects. And then at the end of a PhD, typically, you know, you, you have to, you reach that point where you have to do a postdoc in somebody else's lab and you're very much sort of working under their, under their direction and an area of interest for them. And I thought, you know, this is the point now which I can continue my independent research career, albeit through a, um, through a startup. And that made sense for, for, for a few different reasons. From a kind of technical perspective, you know, the brilliant thing about um, starting a deep tech company is that you can amass sufficient resources to combine several disparate technologies in a way that you'd never be able to do in the context of an academic institution. Quite often the way that at the, a university is put together is, is sort of siloed by department. But one of the driving factors of Lab Genius is we sit at the confluence of several disparate technologies. So it made sense to pursue that through a different vehicle. And, you know, with the world being what it is now, there's a lot of capital available to do something like that. So structurally, a startup made sense. Financially, a startup made sense. And it gave me an opportunity to build something as well. And, and the last thing I'll say on that front is, you know, at the time, people said to me, James, you know, why, why don't you just sign up for a postdoc? Why are you going out and starting a company? And I actually did an evaluation of the risk profile of those two different endeavors. And the challenge of if you do a postdoc is that you're on a fixed term contract and a bank is never going to grant you a mortgage. So actually, even on paper, it was less risky for me to start a startup than it was for me to do a postdoc. Uh, maybe that says a lot about the current state of academia. But, you know, actually, it represented both um, an opportunity with a bigger upside and one with, with more short term stability as well. That's absolutely fascinating. And as you say, I think that's an insight that most people would not naturally gravitate towards. Uh, I think when you frame it in that way, you think about the potential upside, that actually that, that makes sense. So I'm interested, James, deep tech startups are really fascinating because one of the things that I often think about with our business, HX, is when enterprise technology company, like we have clients, right? We sell clients and I know clearly there are applications to your product and that's the sort of thing that can can happen. But it's it's much more measurable and incrementally kind of accessible um, when it comes to progress. And so how have you kind of, um, how does one in a deep tech startup measure progress? And candidly, how do you, um, when it's difficult to make progress, how do you manage your motivation and manage the ebbs and flows that are inevitable in a startup when actually it can be really hard sometimes I expect to know whether you're making progress or not? It's a great question. It's a big question as well. Uh, so I've kind of grappled with a similar thing, a uh, similar way of, of, of trying to understand my own business, trying to understand the field as an angel investor as well, and then even trying to communicate what we do to potential investors as, as well. And the way that I kind of frame it in my mind is that 
I think of different businesses as having different sized unit operations. As you say, maybe you're an enterprise SaaS business. The unit operation is really nicely defined. You have an input, you have an output, and really, you know, can you hit scale? How many customers can you have? How many times can you run it? There's a lot less ambiguity. There's an opportunity to iteratively refine and scale that as a thing. The challenge of a deep tech company, as you say, is often your <laughs> your unit operation might be huge. And in the case of drug discovery, you know, one might argue that that unit operation is a 10-year process from inception to taking that molecule into the clinic. And so, you know, how do you say to yourself, yes, we're going uh, you know, down the right path, we've made progress, uh, we're creating value, et cetera. It is actually quite hard to do. And that has a number of, number of implications. One of the implications is in terms of building company culture, in terms of building a team, you, you have to draw those lines. You have to state up front, hey, this is what success looks like. But it also means that the business itself has a greater deal of inherent ambiguity. And so that really means that the people who thrive most in a deep tech company are those who are comfortable operating in an environment where, you know, things aren't black and white. You have that that high degree of ambiguity. And that's sort of been quite impactful in terms of shaping our thinking around how we how we build and, and scale the company. And then in terms of the investors that we interact with, one of the the challenges that we ran into there is very, very early on, uh, when we first tried to raise money, we went out and we spoke to investors who, you know, would fall under the the umbrella of, you know, your typical SaaS investor. And they said, hey, you know, what you've got is a an interesting approach. Can you scale it in the cloud? And this became sort of an, <laughs> uh, yeah. an ironic thing that we just kind of every time, every time we met a um, an investor who would say, hey, this is interesting. Can you scale it in the cloud? You know, you would immediately be saying, okay, okay, right. This is not the, the right type of investor. And it wasn't really until we met Kindred, and I know you've had Layla on this this show and spoken to her, but somebody who, who had a deep background in genomics and deep understanding of the underlying technology, we were able to have a sensible conversation around the direction of the company and, and the types of capital required. Now, one thing I would observe is that over the past five, seven years, the funding ecosystem within London and Europe has changed dramatically. It's not the case now that all tech investors are SaaS tech investors. You have this emergence of highly sophisticated frontier investors who are really smart about the way that they look at these companies. And as a consequence of that, there's a huge number of these companies now being financed at seed stage and beyond. It's really interesting. Again, when we were raising our Series A, and it was the kind of the first time we'd really put our head above the water because we were privately financed for a really very small round the first time round. It's been fascinating to look at the investment landscape, you know, and for better or worse, I, I think if you look at investors right now, I think that there's never been a more active investment, it hasn't been a more active investment time in a very long time. But it is great, you know, to see the emergence of people who can see um, what you do, particularly as something that is investable and something that doesn't have to have can you scale it in the cloud yeah that, i imagine that was yeah, that's got to be a, a, a joke you probably made sarcastically to yourself after a little while because that's a, a frustrating thing to hear I, I expect well i mean i will just jump in there and say you know a real danger there is as a recent grad you know you speak to all of these investors who you hold in very high esteem and, and when you hear 10 of them, you know, in a row say, can you scale it in the cloud? You start you start thinking, should we be scaling this in the cloud? Um, so, you know, I think, I think, luckily, I think that's not the case that you'd run into 10 people who'd say that now, but that was the case back then. I suppose that takes me around to the reflection I had in the question I was going to have. So how do you frame what you do in your head in terms of the progress you want to make? Because I think that's a question that I have, like, again, I'm not trivializing what I do, because I think, you know, I love that phrase, the adaptation of a, I think it's a Tolstoy or Dostoevsky phrase that all startups that fail are, are similar and the ones that succeed are all different. Right. Uh, and I know that HX has its own challenges that I have to think about. But that being said, there's much more of a playbook for me, I think, 
when I look at what HX does, when I, when I look at, or I try to wrap my head around what Lab Genius does, how do you frame success for yourself? I know that's an open-ended question, um, but probably one you think about a lot. Yeah, well, I guess I'll touch on first, you know, what does success look like for the company? How do we frame in the company? And then I'll tackle it on a sort of personal basis. With a deep tech company, you're simultaneously grappling with technical risk, operational risk, scientific risk, commercial risk, etc. And I think a helpful way in which to kind of manage those conversations, both internally and with investors, is to say, this is our list of risks. Here are the existential ones. And this is where we need to kind of focus. And, and so it's often effectively what you're doing is investing and de-risking each of those individual items and then that then enables you to kind of strengthen your business case and and make sure you've navigated the business to a meaningful meaningful inflection point but again to be able to have those conversations you have to have that sophistication with your investors with your non-exec directors to to really get into the meat of of what that means so that's how i look at the business internally and the reason that you need to do that is in a drug discovery company where you're looking to develop your own molecules you need to raise uh, hundreds of millions from from the markets to do this. And maybe in a typical SaaS business, you've got the input of investment, then you've had some process and you have revenue and it all cycles back. But in a company like this, all you're doing is taking cash and really converting it to drugs. And then there's that big question of, you know, will those drugs actually do anything in the real world? So it's a much harder thing to evaluate. So that's that's how I think we try and look at success, at least in the short term through the business. Over the longer term in the business, once we've ingested more capital and produced more assets, it can be somewhat reduced to a spreadsheet exercise. But, you know, we're still a long way, a long way off from that. I think on a personal level, the different dimensions I kind of look at there are, does what I do on a day to day basis bring me joy? Do I feel fulfilled? I can't say that the <laughs> I'm always achieving all of those um, those goals because I think the other thing about you know building and growing a startup is that it's often the case that there's probably just something inside you that says you have to build this thing. And if you look at it rationally, you're like, it doesn't make any logical sense on paper. You know, I could earn more money in a different job. I could have less stress. You know, no matter how you rationalize it, you'll come back down to this piece of there's just something inside you that says you've got to do it. And I, and, and I can see you're nodding. So uh, I'm guessing you feel something similar there. hundred percent. That's a really great answer. And I think, you know, the thing about <laughs> having joy it's a funny thing for, for founders because I, I, I really like the phrase. So, uh, one of the founders of Databricks describes being a startup founder as doing the worst job you'll ever love. I can, <laughs> I, I can see you, you probably you get what I mean there, I expect. Yeah, I mean, it captures it perfectly, doesn't it? And I think there's that tension between you know, the journey and the destination. It's easy to, to kind of set that big, bold, ambitious destination and be excited about that. But you also have to be excited on that day-to-day level about the journey as well. Yeah, uh, I often frame for myself because I think I have done stereotypically what lots of founders do and, you know, frame success completely incorrectly for myself along the way. You know, after three or four years and HX is going great now and we've had a good run all the way through. I talk about it a lot when I onboard new joiners at HX about growth, success and happiness, because I think particularly in the world we're in right now, where the big technology firms are just so astonishingly large, so astonishingly profitable. The sorts of people that would come and work at LabGenius or, or HX, uh, lots of them could probably go and get into Google and, or Netflix and earn, you know, five times what they earn here. But what I have learned is what we have been able to offer team members is the ability to grow and forge their own journey in a way that there's no chance you're doing. You join the, the Formula One team of technology and you're going to go and build a cog and you're going to be magnificent at building that cog. Whereas at HX, we're like, well, we don't even really know what the car, the shape of the car is quite yet. So that's, you get to have a hand in that. And that's something I think that I personally use to measure for myself. Is that actually, am I, can I look back in every three months or six months and go, cool, you've grown 
And actually, you feel pretty happy about what you've achieved. You're really glad for that experience. Lots of these things, they hurt a lot while you're doing them. And then it's at the end of it, you look back and go, wow, that was pretty damn great. I'm glad I got here. Yeah, and I, and I, I could say, you know, that's certainly the case for myself and the folks in, in the team at Lab Genius, where, you know, you have this opportunity to be on a, on a really incredible growth journey. Yes, it's not going to be easy, but you know you're going to come out the other end of that with skills and experience that you probably couldn't have picked up at a larger organisation. Lab Genius has been around since 2012. So I suppose the first thing I'd say to you is amazing congratulations on your impending, I suppose, 10-year anniversary, which probably feels nuts. Well, actually, maybe I can ask you, like, how's it felt to you? Can you believe it? Or You know what? It's um, I was reflecting on this the other day, as you, know, as you say, coming up to 10 years of working on this project. And I guess some some sort of take-homes that I had there, and this speaks to this point we just we just discussed around the growth journey. If I was starting it again from scratch, it would be a lot faster for several reasons. And it's interesting to think about what those reasons are and and what are the learnings from it. For a deep tech business, often progress is a function of how productively you can deploy capital. And and when I look at the very early years of Lab Genius, and and actually maybe that's too generous to myself, quite a few of the the, the past nine, 10 years of Lab Genius, the team was pretty small and we were deploying fairly small amounts of capital. So the amount of science that we could get done was relatively modest. And what we were effectively doing is de-risking for ourselves and then basically training ourselves, de-risking for the investors, the opportunity. You know, when I look at the biotech veterans and how they build their companies, they'll raise 100 million off the bat, hire, you know, the very best people in the world. And just that on-ramp in terms of growth is incredibly steep. And so I feel very grateful that, you know, I've had that opportunity to almost have a um, a slightly gentler on-ramp whilst, you know, I myself have been been going up that learning curve. And, and you know, actually that's that's a privilege to be able to have that. But when I look at progress through the company, as I say, progress is, is highly nonlinear. And the amount of science that you can get done is a function of how many people you have sort of working at the coal face in the lab. And we're a team of 60 people now. And this is either kind of like a soul destroying thing or a very exciting thing. But the amount of progress we'll make in one week now is probably more than, you know, we ever made in our first year uh, when we started the business. So, so you know, it's, it's been really interesting to see the company go through that transition. I mean, I, I think by most people's standards, you feel pretty proud of that sign of growth, isn't it? It's, it's been really fascinating to hear, at least like this incremental unit of scientific progress, which is something I suppose that you have to be able to do in your field. Because I think founders, often you'll hear them say, look, with this month, we made more revenue today than we did in our all of 2020 or something like that. And I suppose to some extent you're thinking about, yeah, how much are we pushing things on? It must feel pretty good to be able to say that. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, the thing that I get so excited by is the fact that, you know, for the area in which we're working, so we're in, in, in the field of protein engineering, developing new molecules, you know, we have definitely one of the best labs in the world for what we do. And it's amazing just to sit at the forefront of that and to, you know, walk around the labs and to see amazing scientists designing new assays, to see the folks running the automation, to see those robots running experiments. And you know, it, it's absolutely amazing that feeling to think that you're just on that bleeding edge of science. And that's a really great opportunity and privilege for sure. That's still the bit that personally gets me most revved up. When you can feel your company is moving things forward in a way that no one else can or could, that's a special feeling, I think, elicits a, a reaction, an exciting, almost like childlike reaction in me when I sure. occasionally see those things. So yeah, I can totally relate there. So I suppose maybe asking you, thinking and reflecting on the 10 years, can you think about personal and professional watershed moments that have come up for you? Yeah, you know, I think the big change that's happened for me is my approach in order to achieve in life, the best way to do that is to work hard at something. That was definitely true in undergrad, master's, PhD, etc. And then you suddenly hit the startup phase and then you realise that, yes, you have to work all of the hours of the day right at the start. 
But then there's this kind of law of diminishing returns where just working hard doesn't cut it. And you have to work smart. And the problem of working smart is that's a hell of a lot easier to do when you have great mentors. And so it was only when I started surrounding myself with, you know, absolutely exceptional mentors that I realized how dumb I'd been working and how uh, <laughs> I had opportunities to work smarter. And so, you know, those mentors are people like Leila, our investor, our chairman, Edwin Moses, Patrick Pichette, another mentor and investor of ours. Again, I think, you know, this inflection point for me is on, on my own growth journey has just been learning how to be smarter in, in terms of how I work and how I organize my time. Because, you know, up until fairly recently, you know, the way I operated was just put in more hours, brute force your way through. And of course, when you have kids, that is absolutely not possible. No, no, you're absolutely right. And it's a forcing function. You know, I think it's really interesting to hear you say this because we are going through, HX is going through its first legitimate growth function where, you know, I always describe the startup phases as at the very beginning, kind of not necessarily everyone does everything, but kind of anyone can almost do anything at the very beginning. And then you get into a situation where lots of people do multiple jobs, right? So everyone has three jobs. And then you slowly move, like HX is just transitioning out of that phase where everyone is just going to have their own job. So if you could do any job in your own startup that wasn't yours, what would you do? Wow, I do most jobs that weren't mine in the startup. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Uh, yeah. So you know what? I actually ask myself this question all the time. And the reason is I, I end up taking on a ton of different tasks, many of which I'm absolutely terrible at. And, and I need to constantly review what I do and say, actually, what other job do I want? And so Lab Genius is at an interesting inflection point right now where we're bringing on some really experienced folks into the management team. And it's been it's given me uh, the opportunity to say, what do I really enjoy and how will I change my role as a result of that. So I think that's a continual process for any for any founder as they realize what they're good at and what they're not so great at. Your eldest is four now. So, you know, how has becoming a dad changed your work life and how you've approached it? Because, you know, I remember the era where previously, you know, I didn't really think twice on working seven days a week, coming home, having some dinner. And then while something's on on TV with Sarah, I would do some more work. Whereas now, you know, I have to be significantly more rigorous and and I want to be right to partition time for time with family you know once you have kids both your startup and your children grow and they come across kind of inflection points or watershed moments at different times so can I hear thoughts on how you've made it work and realizations and learnings you've had yeah I would say the two things that jump out at me is is number one you know when I'm with my kids I just try to be very present and that's actually been a huge a huge relief in the sense that if you're focusing on being there, being present, you can't worry about work. And, you know, I'll try and leave my phone in a different room, just trying to focus on them. And really, you know, before I had Evie, who's my oldest, my tendency would be just half focus on you know, a conversation with my wife while writing an email. And I call it kind of grey time where you're kind of half working, half, you know, there. And, and it's bad for everybody involved. You know, you don't do efficient work and, and it damages, you know, the, the relationships uh, around you. So, Having a kid was the very first time that I was able to like properly switch off and focus on somebody else. And that was hugely positive. And then I would say the second thing was how the learnings of a parent had then reflected back on the business in the sense that, um, you know, you have a kid and suddenly uh, it's not all about you. And, you know, just in terms of helping to, to manage your own emotions, to uh, realize your child's like watching absolutely everything that you do, you know, I, that was actually really helpful back in the workplace as well, where, you know, you do have to role model, you do have to control your emotions, you do have to really actually care and look out for those around you as well. And so that, that was something that I found really helpful. It's funny, I was talking to someone this morning about this, about, you know, the ultimate 
um, oh, that was it, someone we were actually interviewing and they talked about their son's birthday and they were just talking about how proud they are of who their, their son's become. And I think something that really stuck with me, advice I got given very early as a dad, which is ultimately your children are a reflection of you right? They watch you all the time, right? That's the way they learn. I mean, it's just probably part of the neural network framework of training that exists in our in our brains, right? Um, that we're spending a lot of time, again, you, you'll know far better than me, uh, trying to replicate, you know, they pattern match and that's what they do. And actually the most important thing you can do is to provide the right role model <laughs> for them in the way you conduct yourself. And it's so true about how that flows through to your startup as well. But lots of people say the culture of a startup is just an extension of its founder's personality. <laughs> Uh, and I, I shudder to think about what that looks like on Sundays, if that's the truth for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there are some great points there. And until I had a kid, it was really easy for me to kind of work really hard and almost expect the same of everybody around me. And I, I think it's helpful for a business, especially like ours, where equal representation of the genders and sciences is a really important priority, something that we need to champion. Having a CEO who who will purposely be out the office at, you know, 6 p.m. so he can get home to, to read his kid a bedtime story. You know, th- that then means that, you know, if everyone says, right, if the CEO is doing it, I can, I can do that too. Now, now, it may be the case that I clock on later once the kids are asleep and, you know, quietly working on some stuff. But, I mean, the key message is that um, it's important to create and build a culture where, where um, people feel empowered to put their family first because that's, that's how they'll do their best work and, and, you know, create the most value for not only for themselves, but in the business, but also in their home life as well. I remember talking with Layla about this, that successful startups are not a short endeavor. And the likelihood is that most of your team in some way, shape or form, given that most people have kids nowadays, are going to, the mum or dad bit is going to crash into the startup bit, right? And you need to have a system that's resilient to that. Because if you don't, you know, going to, it's going to be highly disrupted. Those great people you've had in your business, as you've been through yourself, right? Who are going through that transition from people who can throw everything at the business every hour, every day, you have to learn to make it work in a different way. So I can totally relate. Um, have you? Do you have any other startup mums and dads in, in the Lab Genius family? Yeah, we do. And what's really nice is, is that these are folks who, um, you know, I've been working with for some years and they've gone away and they had their um, maybe first or second child come back into the business. And, you know, actually, that's something that's really nice to be able to relate to people. So if I'm chatting with somebody who's just joined the business, maybe it's around, you know, how do they find managing their children? And, you know, actually, that in itself is something that's changed as well. So as the company's grown, uh, we sort of professionalize the organization and brought in different functions. One of the tendencies there is is we've actually changed the demographic that we've hired. We're hiring more people who are parents, more people who have adult children, maybe. And again, you know, I can learn from them around their experiences and and how they've managed to juggle things. So it's been great from that perspective as well. For sure. I think it definitely brings you together in a way that's hard to, you know, relate. It's It's a different sort of hobby to other hobbies in terms of having something in common. Awesome. So James, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your children? You know, my sister, well, I have two sisters. One of them is a sculptor. The interesting thing about her is she absolutely adores what she does. And as a result has been, you know, quite successful through her work there. And I think I would love for the same thing for my children to find something that they um, absolutely adore. They absolutely care about, you know, the money or, or those things aren't important but they become successful through just absolutely following their passion. You know, you have so little time on this planet here for a blink of an eye. Make sure that you're just spending time doing something that that you love and and that you find energizing because it's so easy, especially as a startup CEO, to get dragged into stuff that 
you have to get done because the, the buck stops with you. But it's not stuff that you write in your memoirs. This was a highlight of your life. And just be really intentional around that. You know, whether you are a CEO or, or not, um, it's so easy to slip into doing stuff that isn't generative. So, yeah, that would be the big learning for me. That's awesome. I couldn't agree more. Our, our final onboarding slide says work hard, be kind, be useful and have fun. Right. I think it's important, valuable lessons. As long as you're doing all of those things, things, you know, tend to work out, don't they? Startup shout outs. Before we close up, our show ends with our regular feature, Startup Shoutouts, where we shine a light on anyone, any people in the startup ecosystem, whether they're founders, advisors, or otherwise, um, that we admire. So who's your startup shout out, James? Yeah, so my startup shout out is a man called Paul Wickers, who's a CEO of a company called Hug. That's uh, Hug with, with three G's at the end. And he's quite an inspiration for me. So, so we're both members of a community called Forum, where we meet regularly and we discuss the challenges um, uh, associated with being involved in, in a startup. And, and several of the other kindred founders are also a member of that forum as well. And he's someone who's um, a little bit older than me, has kids and manages to to balance both, you know, the startup trials and tribulations um, alongside being a, a really active and present dad. And so just having somebody who's a little bit further on in that journey who I can ask questions to and just hear about their experiences has been really helpful for myself. Super cool. That sounds like an awesome uh, initiative. Well, we'll be sure to put a little shout out to him in the show notes and to find out a little bit more. I'm fascinated about Hug with three Gs. Well, look, what a super thoughtful, really insightful conversation that's been. I really enjoyed it. I always joke in the show that this is my ultimate hack, where basically I just get to meet loads of really cool entrepreneurs and ask some questions about how they make it work and then go and try to steal some of the ideas and put it into, into my life. Definitely made it. got a fair few notes here. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks so much. And it's been a real pleasure, real pleasure chatting with you today. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 